Welcome back to Killer Friend, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy. And I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, we are talking about Dirty John. It was on Bravo, and now it's on Netflix, and it was a podcast and a article series before that. I and mean, it's a true story. And it's true. Well, what's in the show is mostly well, I'm true. sure they've taken a lot of liberty. But we'll talk the, about those. The generality is it's based on a true story. And it's pretty... And you know what? This stuff really happens... I have personally not experienced it, but I have experienced it via Uh as a friend who got sort of... um, Oh, taken like this? uh Uh-huh. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, man. It's so hard to watch them go through it. It's so hard. Isn't it? You can't convince them of anything. Mm -mm. Nope. Because they're going to give their money to the scammers or sleep with the scammer. Yeah. I mean, he's a con man. This is what they do for a living. And then you can't blame them or blame anybody for having been conned. <laughs> I mean, the I don't guys, blame. No, okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Not I the con jumped men. to a conclusion. No, yeah, we no, blame no, no. the I'm con men. The, the, the women, especially, <laughs> yeah. because, you know, there's a reason why these guys do this because they're really good at it. They know what they're doing. So, I mean, it's like, well, of course. I mean, you can't blame yourself for being taken a little bit. Yeah. You know? You can say, I wish you'd been less naive, or I wish you'd listened to the people in your life who were trying to help you. But those con men, they know. They know that people in their lives are going to tell them differently, and they have a plan for that, too. They know. Yeah, they do. It's scary. Yeah, they do. The gentleman who, and I say, use that word very loosely, mm-hmm. who conned a friend of mine, um, he ended up being wanted at like 11 states. <gasps> Did they catch him? Nope. Oh, not. And then it's been long enough now that we probably wouldn't hear an update, even if he was caught. Well, he's probably not using the same name. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Hilarious, right? (sighs) Hilarious in that I want to roll my eyes and cry. Exactly. (laughs) Not in the ha ha. Boy, isn't that funny? Yeah. Funny, weird. Not funny. Ha ha. As uh, TVS used to ask. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about who's in this. The lovely Connie Britton plays Deborah Newell. Uh, She was in Friday Night Lights, uh, Country Music Television's Nashville, 24. I remember her back from Spin City with Michael J. Fox. Oh. And I was like looking at her bio and I'm like, well, yeah, I know she, I didn't really watch Friday Night Lights. I didn't watch Nashville. You know, that's not where I recognize her from. And I'm like, Spin City. That is so funny. Uh huh. Then we have Eric Bana as John Meehan. He was in Hulk, which was not something I was familiar with, but he, I have seen The Other Boleyn Girl, which he was in, which I I read that that book and saw the movie. And it was very interesting, a different different kind of take on that time frame. And a lot of it's fictionalized because they don't really know. But Henry VIII was the father of her children. Right. So he was also in The Time Traveler's Wife. Yeah, and I never saw that either. I didn't either. But I did see Troy. Yeah. Oh, and oh. I love Troy. Yeah. Well, he's just so pretty. 
Wow. He's so pretty. Why do we why do we think that these dark, brooding men are pretty? Well, he was pretty, but but I have to I have to admit, there's another pretty face in that film that uh takes oh, in, in the Troy. Mm-hmm. Which one do you think it is? I, I don't know. I don't think I've seen that movie. <gasps> you haven't seen Troy? <laughs> we we have issues. Stop the tape. We're like, what? Holy crap. Okay, Troy, Brad Pitt, Eric Bana, and Orlando Bloom. Oh, God. It's going to hurt because they're so much pretty. Oh, they're so much pretty. Oh, man. They're like prettier in their pinky finger than I'll ever hope to be. I mean, but I understand. It's just I don't understand where they get it from. I don't know. Kissed yeah. by an angel. Isn't that what they used to say? <laughs> and there's a song for that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, um, but Brad Pitt was my uh, uh, my favorite yeah. that group. But Eric Bana, it was fantastic yeah. in it. Yeah. yeah. Then we have Juno Temple, who plays Veronica Newell. She was in Maleficent. She was also in The Other Boleyn Girl. She was in Atonement. And she was in a movie called Horns with Daniel Radcliffe. Really? Yeah. And <sighs> it, like... I can't decide if it looks terrible or interesting because <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe, you know, little Harry Potter has horns and it's kind of weird. Yeah, that's going to be hard. I don't know. But it I, might be fun to laugh at. It might at. be fun to watch though. Yeah. It's one of those. Hmm, watch I us fall in love with it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to like really hunt down a place to watch it. And I don't know if I'm willing to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Then we have Julia Gardner, who plays Tara. Love her. Oh, my gosh. She was amazing in Ozark. You and I Love were her. just talking about this, and we're like, we got to talk about this while we're recording. It's wasteful to talk about it when we're not recording. Exactly. <laughs> I I love this chick. Oh, she's so great. She's so, so good. So, like, spunky and smart, and she's not, like, ultra smart in this, but you haven't gotten there yet. I haven't the end of The, the yeah. end of the season. She seems a little fragile and a little ditzy. She's not dumb. No, a little, she's not dumb. A little ditzy. Yeah. She, your, your opinion of her will change. She puts off an air that screams innocence. Like she's trying to hold on to a certain level of innocence. Mm-hmm. But she sees like the black chasm that's like surrounding her reality. And like reality is getting thinner and thinner for her. Mm-hmm. And yet, and she just wants to do right. Like she just wants to say what's right and do what's right. And there's just this beautiful innocence. But this, this actress, Julia Garner, I, She's something amazing. about what she brings to the role, but she is just so expressive without being, I don't know, theatrical. And I don't know. I just love her. Yeah. I can't wait to see her well, work forever. Then we have Jean Smart, who played Arlene Hart, Deborah's mom. She's been in all kinds of stuff. She was in most recently, like The Watchmen on HBO, which is amazing it's so weird but it's so good <laughs> it's so good she's in 24 fraser designing women hello designing women designing women i mean i grew up watching that show okay and it's on hulu mm-hmm. and i have been going back and watching it every once oh. in a while oh my gosh that's I still gonna remember be my it. next one i'm going back through and watching all the golden girls because oh, they're yeah? all on hulu hello? and i'm like oh i gotta i gotta be able to Say, oh, I remember that episode when Jackie tells me that she's got Golden Girls, and you've got your Golden Girls. I do big, have my Golden Girls, your Golden uh, Girls Yeti. Cup right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's darling. 
<laughs> and then the last person I have to mention before we jump into our recap is uh, Kiko Ajena, who plays Nancy, Deborah's co-worker. And she was in Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Yeah, she's the best friend. And Amazing. It was, so, it was, she was, she's always been adorable and Rock darling. And, and, she, and she doesn't age. No. Because she looks just like she did when she was in Gilmore Girls. Yeah. And she was like a decade older than Rory in real life and still looked like her contemporary. I'm like, it's not fair how she refuses to age. I know. How does she look so, so, so young? Because she's, I don't know, beautiful. Good genes. Anyway. All right. So are we ready to jump into our recap? All right. Let's recap this. Oh my gosh. So much happens in this, just this first episode. Yeah. It's hard to hold on to a little bit. Oh my gosh. It opens with a woman in black walking down a stark white hallway. And as she walks down this hallway, you get these flashes of blood on pavement and a knife falling to the ground and blonde hair and then just rivers of blood on the pavement. Then this woman, she steps into a hospital room and looks very concerned while a man in a suit waits outside the door. That's all we get for the That's opening. And then get. we have the little like intro. And we see this woman in black. We know it's the same woman. Long blonde hair. Beautiful lady. Yeah. Perfect hair. Yeah. Let's just remember oh, that. Perfect. God. Perfect. In every single scene. Yeah. Everything. It's unfair. But I'm so happy for her that she has beautiful hair. I'm just a little jealous of it. Uh, yeah. Just that fair. Absolutely. <laughs> So she's kissing this man, looks very happy, and we learn right up front that this is based on a true story, a series of articles, and a podcast by Christopher Gofford. In a very nice business park, there's a van with a sign on it that says Madeira Interiors. Inside, the woman, Deborah, the same one that we saw walking down the hallway, is looking at items inside of a well-lit storage area. And we learn that she's the main head honcho at this interior design company, Madeira. We learn that she's online dating, which her one of her co-workers is absolutely flustered by. He's like, you're beautiful. Why do you need to online date? And she's like, well, everybody online dates now. Yeah. Pretty much. And She's that's like, not a lie. No. I mean, it seems it, true to me. It's, it's, it seems true. I hope I never have to find out. <laughs> God, uh, let's not go down that road. No, let's not. That would be awful. Then we see her go on several bad dates. <laughs> There's the condescending workaholic lawyer. There's a guy who's really worried about the prices on the menu. There's the guy who talks with his mouth open and drinks too much. There's the guy who's talking about his troubled childhood, because that's great first date material. Right? Like, just open with that. And the guy who's clearly not over his ex. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Which... I'd rather uh, deal with that guy, though. I would, too. I, you know, I, yeah, I'd rather deal with, I'm not really ready to date, but I'm here, right. than childhood trauma or choose with his mouth open or complete or, arrogance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Then we see Deborah getting ready for a date and her daughter who lives with her is very concerned because the date is coming to the house. They're walking. 
So Deborah feels okay about it because they're walking to a place where she's a regular to have a meal together. So she's like, I'm not getting in a car. They know me there. And her daughter's like, but then he knows where you live, which yeah, I'm kind of like. What an interesting conversation because I think maybe not even 20 years ago, we would have been like, what is this deal with you meeting people at restaurants? Like, is yeah. he not a real man? Can he not come to your home and pick you up for a date? And now it's kind of like, uh, what? You're first giving him his address? Yeah, like, no. Ah, You're yeah. not meeting him in public first? Exactly. Yeah. And, Isn't yeah. it interesting how the conversation has changed? Yes. And I get that the online dating has something to do with it, because if you met somebody online... Right. Then you you may not want to give out your address, but now it's like kind of just a rule of thumb. Like first date, you know, let's meet. Yeah, I'm yeah. driving myself in case you're a creep, and I want to get in my car and leave. Right, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Fair, interesting conversation. Yeah, I thought it was really kind interesting. Loved it. Yeah, their if their appearance, these ladies' appearance, and their beautiful home doesn't tell us that they have money, then. We know they have money because the daughter is begging to borrow her Maserati since she's not going to be using it for the evening. Like, okay. That's money. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's like money, money. So the daughter, Veronica, we learn her name, answers the door to the date and she, quote unquote, mistakes him for a delivery person. She knows it's him, but she (laughs) pretends that he must be delivering a package. Because he's wearing shorts and a faded polo and sneakers. Right. Like he looks a little ratty. Yep. Okay. But I have to tell you what this Vulture article says about it because it's stinking hysterical. Okay. So this is what the author says. I don't care what he is wearing because Eric Bana could be wearing a jumpsuit made out of poisonous jellyfish and I would still try to get all over that. know that I'd go that far. But. I don't know that I'd go that far either, but I was like, that's that's hysterical. And you know what? Somewhat fair. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. You know what? That's how you know somebody's attractive when they show up in a ratty t-shirt and shorts and you're like, yep, still hot. You know? So John claims he's a doctor and Veronica's not buying it. Then they head to dinner. And he tells her about his time in Iraq with Doctors Without Borders, though they prefer to go by the abbreviation MSF. Okay. Then John does what no other date that we saw did, is he actually wants to know something about Deborah, about who's her hero, what inspired her to become an interior designer. You know, in hindsight... Questions that he wants answered because of what he's going to do. And that's terrifying. It is terrifying because what we want as women is to be seen. Yeah. We want dudes. We want you to ask us the questions and hear what we have to say and tell us about yourself, but also take an interest in us. We want both. Well, yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because it's really the same thing that guys want. Guys just offer it and don't stop talking. So, and we tend to like to listen. 
we don't get asked as much as we tend to ask as women. Really, I think the sexes are actually more equal than we realize. It's that, well, we want to be known and share about ourselves and have somebody be interested the same way that the guys on these dates were sharing about themselves and want somebody to care. But it's so scary because this guy is a sociopath. And so he's able to use this as an opportunity to make her feel more comfortable than she ought to, gather information that's important. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. And I do think that it's more than just that women like to listen and want to get to know. I think particularly now in this day and age, is I want you to talk about yourself so I can determine whether you're somebody I want to spend time with. Absolutely fair. If you're somebody that I can trust. And unfortunately, him trying to gather information about her gave her the feeling of security Mm -hmm. that was unwarranted, but nobody else had done that. Nobody else had done that. I mean, and those men were... she. Any one of those men she probably should have dated than this guy. I know, right? Any one of them. Mm-hmm. Chooses with mouth open, alcoholic. Fine. Better. Yeah, better. Better. It is scary. We want to know people, and you're right. Dating is still about kind of interviewing people. Yeah. And so you want to feel known and feel like you have an opportunity, and you want part of to know, are they interested in me? Mm-hmm. Are you going to, you know... I don't know, respond to my bids for affection or, you know, so that we want to know all of those things, but you're right. We also need to listen because we want to know about them. So it's this give and take and the balance has to be kind of right. And the fact that it's all about her on this day, that yeah. he's always well, spinning it. Well, but it's not all about her. He's, he shares enough to seem normal, Yeah, but also asks. But then he responds with something that makes it feel like a connection. Because yes. once she's offered something about herself, it gives him an opportunity to go, oh, me too. And uh-huh. that creates the connection, which is how he makes it then about her. And so there's enough of a, like a, oh. it's just a whirlwind, it's right? A, like, it's unnerving how good he is at it. Yeah. And, oh, oh. So they get a little tipsy and they head back to Deborah's place. And they smooch, and she kind of breaks away because it's going a little too fast. But she's delighted by it. But it's going a little too fast. And she comes out of the master bathroom where she's just put a little toothpaste in her mouth. Been there, done that. (laughs) (laughs) And he's laying on her bed. And now he's fully clothed. Yeah, he is fully clothed, but he is straight up on her bed. Yeah, telling her how comfortable it is and what an amazing bed she has. And she's like, yeah, no, I want to go back to the living room. And what struck me about this is how politely she asks him because she recognizes as a woman, and this is a thing I think men even still don't really realize, is how women are often polite because they're afraid. Oh, nailed it. And she's super polite, but she's firm, but she's really polite because she doesn't want to anger him because she recognizes that this is a man who is stronger than she is. Mm -hmm. And they're alone. And they're alone. And she doesn't expect her daughter home or she wouldn't have let him come in. Right. Exactly. And and he knows that. Yeah. And he knows that. He knows that at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So nailed it. Oh my gosh. So he leaves in a huff. Like, doesn't talk to her, just yeah. walks out. And I'm like, 
that had been enough for me. That had been the end of that, right? Yeah. But he calls and apologizes. Which and- is so obnoxious because you know what? He set that up on purpose. He knows that if he storms out, she'll feel guilty. He knows it. And then he can be the good guy who's like all apologetic and humbling, which he gets to quote share about himself again in a way that he knows will make her feel something about him. Yo. Oh, oh I self-sabotaged. You were so perfect. You were just like your online profile when so many women I've met were not. In other words, you're as rich as you look. That's <laughs> Let's read the subtext here. Yep. You're as rich as you look and you're pretty and your picture's current and I feel like I would like to take advantage of you. So <laughs> but scary. The whole self sabotage thing was like, I could see it working on her, and I'm like, you're stupid. I mean, you're not stupid because you're not a stupid person, but you're, d- d- you're blinded. Right, completely blinded, but he is playing it. He is. He's so really good at it. And that's why, and that gives you a little more sympathy for Deborah, I think. I think it does. Because he's really good at it. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. Yep. So we see John talking to a woman about debulking surgery, and we come to the impression that she's got ovarian cancer. He's in his scrubs, and she's about to go into surgery. So that's just a quick flash. Then we see another date, and she's talking about her kids, how her son Trey is really settled. She worries about her daughters, Veronica and Tara. They talk about being divorced, And John wishes that he'd known the number one predictor of divorce was eye-rolling. And Deborah says she wants someone to face her problems with rather than fight against. And obviously, her ex wasn't uh, somebody she could fight with rather than against. Tonight, he won't go in because he wants to do it right. And I'm like, in hindsight, such manipulation. It is manipulation, but it does... That's the key about manipulation is that it's always wrapped in truth. Yeah. And that's what makes it hard. Yeah. Makes it hard to decipher until you're looking at it after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Deborah and Veronica go to counseling together and Veronica expresses concern over John, which makes sense. And Deborah says that no man's ever going to be good enough for her, according to Veronica. Also fair. And then we learn that Deborah's been married and divorced four times. Yeah, four. That's that's a lot. It now, is a lot. You know, it's just maybe take a break. Decide you're gonna. I'm not gonna marry anybody until we've been dating for three years. When once you're past divorce number three, yeah, right. You need to be a little more conscious. I would even say divorce number two. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, because in that case, you have the potential for a pattern. Mm-hmm. That's you know? fair. Because the first marriage has a certain, you know, there's a rate of success, right? And these are not statistics that you can then just, you know, go to the bank with. But it is known that the second marriage has a harder time surviving than than a first one that has failed. So, right. um, you know, it's just really hard. I think once you're on the third one, most people take it real slow at that point. Yeah. You know what I mean? And she is somebody who's really rich. And so I wouldn't have been surprised if she had married people who 
she didn't realize was kind of taking advantage of her. Mm-hmm. She might be more apt to end up married a couple like extra times only because, yeah. because yeah. her particular position, you know, some right. people do, some people are in positions where it just, it's harder than some other, other people. But yeah. Yeah. But once you're like four times, uh, introspection time, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like maybe just don't get married. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe just don't. Yeah. Maybe just date. <laughs> Yeah, I don't for know. a while. And I'm not there. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. me either. But it just seems like, I don't know, a little slower would have been probably well advised. And it seems like somebody did try to advise her, her daughter, but it came maybe from a person whom she couldn't hear it from. She couldn't hear it from, and it sounded like all the other times. Yeah. And, you know, I get that. <laughs> I understand that. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. So the physical relationship between Deborah and John advances, and he, uh, he tells her about a scar on his stomach, and he said, only people who survive have scars, which I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. That's a little foreshadowing, too. If you, <laughs> if you yeah. have only watched the first episode of this show, just know there's more to that story. John spends the night and he sees Veronica going into her handbag safe in the morning and uh, he, hey, what you got in there, kiddo? And she's surprised to see him, annoyed to see him, annoyed that he's seen in her safe that she has a safe. She's not happy about this. I'm not happy about this. No. This is like the point where I'm like, I now hate you. Yeah. If I if I had any redeeming characteristics, if I kind of liked who you were and we're kind of holding out hope that maybe it wasn't as predatory as the story indicated, now I hate you. Yeah. Because who are you to be looking in this woman's room? Ah He shouldn't have been anywhere near her bedroom. Anywhere near it. Mm-mm. Oh, no. Yeah. So John and Deborah are talking over breakfast about how they're uh, going to be attending this ovarian cancer treatment benefit. It's a black tie. She reminds him to pick up a tux. And later we'll see him show up in his dirty, nasty scrubs saying that, oh, surgery ran late and I didn't have a charger, so I couldn't call you. Yeah. Mm. So she confesses after they have this black tie event that he shows up to that they have a wonderful time at, but he he shows up completely underdressed. Well, he shows up on purpose in those scrubs. Yes, because he he wants people to think he's a doctor. Mm -hmm. He needed other people to corroborate. Yeah. Doctorness. Yeah. Yes. She confesses to John that she's been married actually four times and he says he doesn't care and professes his love for her and then they start looking for houses together in I Balboa mean, like, Island. What is this, like a week? A week? I mean, it's like four days? It's four weeks, I it's, think. So, it just feels so fast. That was one thing about the show I really was kind of like, they didn't really show that passage of time well. Yeah. And it took me a while to figure out like how long has they, this been? They get better at it. They do it, get better it, at yeah, it. Yeah, well... Because everything happened really fast. It, it does actually yeah. happen really fast. But I was sitting there going, yeah. was that their first date like two days ago? Like, Or was it yeah. a week or something? Or yeah. I was really confused I mean, for a while. It was not a very long time. Mm-mm. So they start looking for houses and he says that 
he would get this lovely house on the water for them if it weren't for his child support and insane tax issues. And Veronica's dressed to go out to Halloween. That's where we kind of start seeing um, some indicators of how much time has passed. They start it pretty, they didn't do a good job from first date to looking for houses on Balboa Island. But after that, they do a really good they job. They get better. Of, yeah. Well, and there is the screen tag. I mean, there's like a yeah. lower third thing going on there and it yeah. says five weeks. So you yeah. do kind of figure it out. But at that point, I'm like, are they fast forwarding five weeks from this point or are they describing oh. what just happened? And so to me, I didn't really think that oh, that was done okay. great. Well, maybe because I'd listened to the podcast, it made complete sense maybe. to me. So, but she's, Dress for Halloween, and Deborah tells her that their therapist says that they shouldn't live together because it's detrimental for Veronica's development. And so she's going to move out and pays $84,000 upfront for a year lease, and it's been five weeks yeah. since their first date. And how manipulative is that of the mother? It's so manipulative and that made me mad at her. And it just shows you that she knows that it's too soon. Yeah, exactly. Because she's lying to her family. Mm -hmm. But people, people convince themselves that lying to a family Mm -hmm. is, is the right thing to do. And it's, um, I get it. Yeah. Only that it's very interesting to have that sort of private secret kind of thing going on. And so... Yeah, Ah. I know it's tough. It's so tough. Then we see the cancer patient again, and she's in a lot of pain, and John tells her he's going to take it away. That's just a quick flash. So we've seen the cancer patient twice now. Mm -hmm. Then Tara, Deborah's daughter. The youngest. Her youngest. And her boyfriend, Jimmy, Tara's boyfriend, Jimmy, arrive for Thanksgiving. They, they get there a little early. They're moving into this house on Balboa Island. And John's really like super rude to them because they're early. And he wasn't expecting them yet. And Deborah's not there. And he makes a really bad first impression. He does. He is really nasty to them. Yeah. Tara kind of gets the impression that they're living together, even though Deborah has explicitly said that John doesn't live there that it's just nice for him to have some things over, but he absolutely does live there. And so they're talking about it, Veronica and Tara that evening and neither one of them like him. And they decide Tara's going to do some snooping. So she kind of snoops and they have a little altercation. It's troubling. And John already starts like low key trying to isolate her from her family mm-hmm. at Thanksgiving. He's like, why don't you ask Tara to go and get this, these new apples for you? Because that's an easy thing that she can do to actually be helpful. And she's like, Oh no, she's with her sister. And he's like, maybe you should stop doing everything for your children. I mean, like little things. And he's not, maybe not wrong, but that's- he's not totally right either. I, it, that's for her to choose and well, for him to make this insinuation after like five, six weeks. Right. And he jumps in like at one point when they're in the closet and don't talk to your mother that way. Like he starts to act sort of authoritarian. It almost gives, it gives the impression 
to Deborah that, you know, she's got somebody on her side finally when she's always been kind of left alone. That whole fight with against instead of fight mm-hmm. against. And, um, you know. Unfortunately, what they're fighting against is her daughter. Exactly. And so then he continues it with this whole uh-huh. isolation thing. Oh, and thing. he like veiled threats of he's going to hit her and she sh- she ought to be hit. And that would teach her a lesson Oh, maddening. Oh, man. At this point, I'm even more mad at Deborah because she's allowing this to go on. You know. You got it. You got it. Tara and Jimmy leave. It's kind of unclear in the show whether they're leaving of their own accord or whether they're being kicked out. In the podcast, she's being kicked out. She and Jimmy are asked to leave. And they do. And they're uninvited to Thanksgiving. And Veronica's still going to go to Thanksgiving because she wants to see the kids. And she would eat Thanksgiving dinner every day if she could. She sees her grandmother, Deborah's mom, at Thanksgiving. And Deborah's mom really likes John. She really likes she John. likes John a lot. And Veronica is very clear about how she still does not like him. Then we kind of fast forward a little bit and we see a Christmas tree up. So we know there's been a passage of time. He gives her a cute little ornament. It's nothing like big, but she fawns over it like it's diamonds. (laughs) And Nancy, her coworker, is ill and was supposed to go on a trip with her to Vegas. And she can't go, so she asks John to drive the truck to Vegas and go to Vegas with her. And they have this lovely time. They end up eloping in mm-hmm. Vegas after eight and a half weeks mm-hmm. of knowing one another. Yep. Oh, and then we see our last flash of the cancer patient. She's screaming in pain and they tell her she can't have anything because she was given fentanyl at a certain time and she screams, it's like he gave me nothing. It's horrible to watch. It's horrible. Whoever played this patient. Because you know, you know what he's done. I mean, if it's, if you had any doubts about who this man was as despicable as he's behaved, if you're like, maybe he's just... Maybe he's just an old school kind of guy. No. No, no. This guy is horrible. He is a despicable human being. And he left a cancer patient in unimaginable pain. Yep. He did that. On purpose. On purpose. This wasn't like an accident. They, You can tell it, you know. Yeah. The question I have is, uh, do you think that he orchestrated Nancy's getting ill? Oh, I don't know. Or do you think he took advantage of an open I think, opportunity? I think he took advantage of an open opportunity, or that's what we're led to believe. Because I don't think that that actually happened that quite that way. Okay. Yeah. I think that she invited him to go. It wasn't that... I think that was a little of the creative liberty that gotcha. they took. So I thought this show was really good. I, I did too. I really enjoyed it. IndieWire found it a little lacking, and I think they liked the articles and the podcast more. They found some things to pick at. What did so they not th- like? Well, they said Dirty John, Bravo's new limited series adapted from the podcast of the same name, does the unthinkable. It makes you not care about Connie Britton. And they just thought she was a little, she didn't have enough depth. I have to say, in that I sort of agree. Uh, yeah, I, I, 
you know, I was like, I really like this. And then I read that and I'm like, oh, they're kind of right. It was fascinating, but I definitely felt the same way. Right. Um, I think what helped is having seen somebody I cared about go through it. Oh, I think yeah. that gave the character more depth for me just naturally. But I think they're absolutely spot on because yeah. there was more times where I was mad at, at Deborah. Yes. Yes. And Agreed. I kind of thought you deserve each other. <laughs> Okay. And that's horrible. Uh, yeah. And they kind of thought they didn't have enough chemistry either. They said the couple's lack of chemistry makes their whirlwind romance less forgiving for Deborah. The ob- audience gets why John is moving so fast. He's up to no good, even if it's unclear exactly how bad things will get. But viewers need to see why Deborah would fall so hard for this guy. And they do a really good job in the podcast. I listened to the first episode of the podcast, which is really like the first episode of the show. Uh-huh. And she talks about, you know, how loving he was and how, you know, thoughtful and he would run errands for her. And it was just like, he made her life easier in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. that nobody had done for quite some time. That makes sense. I think it is hard on a TV show to show the different perspectives because I think for anybody on the outside, they're looking at the couple going, Y'all don't have any chemistry. Right. What in the world is going on here? It doesn't look right to people on the outside. Um, and yet the people on the inside are fully bought in, either as the predator, right. who's fully bought in and focused, or the the person who is being conned. They have a lot of reason why they're fallen in love and why they feel like there's so much chemistry. And that's why they always have to defend their relationship to others because others are like, it's not like y'all go together like two peas in a pod. Like it's just clear that it's very contrived to people on the outside. I think the episode really, I felt like the outsider watching the whole relationship form where you can just see we're, that it we're right. seeing it more from like the daughter's perspective yes. than from Deborah's perspective. Yes. And I think the podcast was a little more from Deborah's perspective. And so we kind of got a little bit more of that though. We do hear from the daughters. Right. So I'd love to see, I'd love to hear that, but I do think that that's why the, the character doesn't have enough depth in this episode. Cause we're not seeing it from her perspective. Yeah. But and unfortunately, I think, it I think, makes yeah. her out to be more of a villain instead of just somebody who is a victim, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Well, well, I mean, it's easy in hindsight when you kind of have some idea of what's coming to judge her more harshly mm-hmm. than if you're in it. Exactly. So, exactly. And if you like this show, there is going to be a second season. But it's not going to be about Deborah and John. It's uh, it's going to turn into a serialized show, no. where each se- or an anthology type of show, not really serialized anthology. So every season will focus on a different awful man and how he victimized woman. Interesting. Yeah. Which I have thoughts about. <laughs> like I kind of I want a little more about the stories where, you know, it's not just white men doing awful things to other people. I, you know, I want I a little know. more than that because we get a lot of that. But also that's really interesting. I know. It's very conflicting, yeah. right? It is conflicting. Hmm. So let's chew on that and take a quick break. Leave the Lights On is a true crime podcast with a paranormal twist. Join creator Eliza and her co-host as they explore terrifying true stories and chilling crimes. Growing up, Eliza had an odd obsession with the darkest desires of humanity, 
and an insatiable curiosity about the afterlife. Now, each week, Eliza brings you tales that will make you want to lock your doors, hide in your room, and of course, leave the lights on. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Dad, I'm hungry. Hi, hungry. I'm Dad. The podcast where nerdy dads talk nerdy fads. We talk life, entertainment, and give advice to those who never asked for it. Like, anytime I do anything, my brother calls me a thought. What do I do? Or, best college degree for a supervillain. So go smash that like button. Find us wherever podcasts live. Uh, where's that, Jared? A magical place called the internet. Like Spider-Man and Elsa's shipping videos. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, I'm hungry. Wait! All right, and we're back. Thanks for sticking with us through that quick break. Now, is it true? A lot of this is true. It's scary how... uh, It's scary how much of it is true? I think so. I mean, I know they took a lot of liberty. We already kind of said that, right? Yeah. Um, But the basic story... Yes. I mean, what happens? That he conned her, victimized her, that she was a little less astute than she should have been. What actually happens at the end of the show, which I'm not going to spoil it because I know you haven't seen and you don't know what's going to happen. So I went into it watching it, knowing exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. And I'm at the last three episodes. Okay. Yeah. I know how the story ends and I don't know if you're going to see it coming. Is it true? E online had a really fascinating article about what the show changed. A lot of it had to do with her children. So she actually has four children, not three, but her oldest daughter was never a part of any of the media. She wasn't really in the articles. Like, I don't think they even said her name. They indicated that there was an oldest daughter, but never said her name. Hmm. She didn't give interviews, any of that. And... Veronica is not her name. Veronica's the daughter's name is actually Jacqueline. Oh, yeah. So, so they yeah. changed it. Yeah. Why, the, why? Um, Did they indicate she she wanted it changed. So when they first started production, not production really, like when they first started working on the television show portion of it, they had the rights to be able to use Deborah and Tara's names, mm-hmm. but they hadn't yet secured that formally for some other people in the show. And one of those was Jacqueline. Okay. And so they did eventually get whatever rights they needed to, to be able to kind of tell her story, to bring her on board, which she was always on board, but she said she'd rather have her name not be used. She'd rather have it be a different name. That makes sense. And I'm like, that's fine. And that was a respectful, intentional change that they made. And Juno Temple, who plays Veronica in the show, she she met Jacqueline at the premiere of the show. They did like a big fancy premiere. (laughs) The first thing that Jacqueline said to Juno (laughs) Uh, was that the safe was bigger in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Which I found very endearing. That Um, is a very unique character aspect. (laughs) It is funny. It's it's so on brand. They nailed her. They They nailed it. Nailed her. I don't know who does that. Like I have... 
I have never met somebody who has a large safe with anything but guns in it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's not, true. Definitely not purses. I mean, we have a we have a safe. It's not that large. And some, if anybody broke into it, they'd be very disappointed because it's like tax documents. Oh, right? <laughs> it's yeah, like exactly. Most boring stuff ever. Yep. <laughs> We're the same. It's like yeah. a fireproof box. It's not yeah. really even a safe. Right. But I mean, the, it's got a code and a key and all that. So, right. But. Like the gun safe is bigger. Like yeah. that's hardy, but, yeah. you know, but not purses. And that's just so interesting. But it ain't wrong, I guess. No, I mean. Well, I mean, they're worth a lot of money. They and she are. takes she takes a lot of pride in taking very good care of them. She really good does. For her. So the quickie wedding in Las Vegas. So actually, it kind of seems like a mutual decision, but really, John had been pressuring Deborah already to, I want to marry you, I love you, I want to marry you, really kind of pushing hard for it. You know what? You know what? It's like, okay, you want to do this? Fine. But prenup. Yeah, exactly. Kanye was right. <laughs> we get want the, prenups. Get the, get the, well, especially her, she's self-made wealthy i mean she worked hard it's so sad you have to say that that. and i know it just just it's a buzzkill to the romance i understand that but i mean it's different when you're both poor neither of you have anything (laughs) and you get married i mean then you know no matter who made the money you deserve half because you did that as part of a team but she's was 59 yeah she had worked her entire life to be able to oy vey (laughs) so probably the biggest edit from the original story was about John's rehabilitation and Deborah helping him detox she never really she never saw him go through a detox really he uh she thought that the prescription drugs that he had were because he'd had back surgery and he's actually very serious heroin user and oh. she didn't realize that Dang. and that's that's not clear in the show no. it really looks like he's just using like stolen prescription medication but it's heroin wow he had a pretty severe heroin addiction interesting and she didn't know it and i think that's a less a sign that she didn't see it and more of a sign of how good he was at hiding it. I think so. I really, I really think so. Probably that was the so. impression that I got. And then, you know, there's some other details that they left out. You know, he shows up at her house for their first date with like kind of raggedy looking. And he tells her, dress me. I want to please you in real life. And she took him to Brooks Brothers and bought him a whole new wardrobe and oh, so that he would be dressed appropriately. Like he just made it out like, you know, I have some financial issues, but they're not my fault. And I don't have any sense of style. So dress me because you interior designer have a beautiful sense of style. It was real manipulative the way he. See, that feels a little um, too on the nose. I have to say, like, that makes me wonder about her, unfortunately, because I'm thinking that just seems mm-hmm. uh, less manipulative and just flat out. Right. Yeah. Abusive or. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it was put to her, but I'm not going to talk about it because there's tons of spoilers, but Bizarre has a really, really interesting timeline. 
of all of the events like starting from way back like 1984 is where this timeline starts um, so that you can really get a whole picture. And I'm not going to talk about that here because there's tons of spoilers, okay. but find us online. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment. You can find us on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod, or you can send me an email at killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. If you need a link to that, I'll be happy to shoot it to you. So is Madeira Interiors a real company? No. (laughs) She really did have her own real company, but it was called Ambrosia Interiors. Oh, I like that better. Yeah, I, I like it better, too. It's her real company that she really built, Ambrosia. And it seems like she might have sold it or sort of passed it off because she's not really listed on their website anymore. There's other people, though Hmm. it's still, it's going by AI or something like that. Uh, AI interiors, Ambrosia interiors or something like that. But they don't go by Ambrosia anymore. And she's got a Ambrosia home furniture and decor store and service where she helps like furnish model homes and things um, in Las Vegas now. So yeah, it was kind of interesting. And the title of this episode is called approachable dreams. Yeah. And that was her motto for how she ran her business was she wanted to create homes that were beautiful, but also very livable. Nice. Yeah. I kind of like that. Yeah, I, I like get it on too. board. So uh, Doctors Without Borders is MS. Yeah, what is this? What? what is this? Okay, totally true because it's actually a French organization. Oh. Medicinas Sans Frontieres MSF. I gotcha. So if you go like the, it'll, if you go on Twitter and find USA Doctors Without Borders, it's MSF underscore USA. Gotcha. Yeah, but they but their name is Doctors Without Borders. So it's kind of a translation. So it the people who are actually working um, right. you know, for that organization, when they're talking to you and me, they're gonna say Doctors Without Borders right. because that's how we know it. If they're talking with people whom they're actually working with and doing the organizing with, they're gonna call it MSF. MSF. Yep. So I was wondering, is seven thousand dollars a month? rental for that house in Balboa Island. Is that reasonable? It, it might actually, actually sounds low. It's a steal. <laughs> $84,000 for a year. So it works out to $7,000 a month. It's kind of a steal. It sounds low. So, so to buy a house on Balboa Island currently, now of course these events happened in 2014, 2015, so prices may have changed a little, but not that much. Uh, it's two to ten million dollars. <gasps> and if you have a, so I looked it up trying to figure out like what your payment would be like if you owned a house out there. You're looking at like seven thousand dollars a month just the payment. Wow. Mm-hmm. Not to mention insurance. Yeah, and then I found this house. $12,500 a month for three bedroom, three bath, 2,200 square feet that looks very, very much like the house that they had. Wow. It really does kind it, of look like it. It looks a lot like it, right? And it's 12000 12500 a month. 
So oh. yeah, like she she got a steal because she could pay eighty four thousand dollars up front. Who can pay eighty four thousand dollars up front for a rental? Rich people. I love this house. I know it's beautiful, right? <laughs> it's so gorgeous and it doesn't even have a garage. And you know street what? parking. It's so perfect because it's like twenty two hundred square feet. And three bedroom, three bath. Like it's bigger. It's a bigger house, right? I mean, not huge, but it's also not too small. You know, it's like, oh wow. Yeah. And I, I imagine maybe that Balboa house would have been like a two bedroom, two bath, two bedroom, two and a half bath. Yeah, like you know, so maybe it was a little smaller than that one, but it looks so much like that house. It does. It looks yeah. exactly <laughs> I mean. Like, if I didn't know better, I would say that's the one they use for filming. I mean, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. $12,500 a month for rent. For rent. For rent. (laughs) John, when he went to the the black tie event, he said that there was a a laparotomy. And I'm like, is that a what? what? Is that real? It's a real procedure. It just basically means that they're opening your abdominal cavity. Now, you don't hear it a lot. It's a little foreign to us because your doctor would probably talk more about a different kind of procedure. It would be like you have a laparotomy as part of having a hysterectomy or have a laparotomy as part of exploratory surgery. They would call it those other things. Then then the procedure they used to get into. I mean you hear laparoscopic. Right. And this is this is like that. So laparoscopic is doing it minimally invasive Mm -hmm. and this is where they actually have to cut open your abdomen. As gross as that is. But it's a real thing. It's a real thing. And then debulking I was like, what? They talked about that with the cancer patient. She was about to go have the debulking surgery. And all that means is it's reducing the volume of a tumor as much as possible. Okay. So, but it's real. So it's like, okay. See, there's him dropping some like details to try to act like he's in the know. Just just enough. Just enough to make you feel like he's smarter than you. Because he's going to pull out terms that aren't so common that most people wouldn't really... Right. No, but sound familiar enough, and then they feel like they should know, but they don't. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's yeah. just a, one of those little things to make sure that he's on top. Yeah, interesting. Manipulative. Mm-hmm. All right, psychology break. I have I've quite a few things. <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> so uh, John claimed that he was self-sabotaging at the end of their first date, and of course that's a real, a real thing. thing. Again, he's it's the lie wrapped in the truth. Yep. Yep. Um, but often people don't realize they're sabotaging themselves. That And a lot of it has to do with self-medication, drugs, alcohol, procrastination, things that interfere with long-term goals. It's not so conscious as he made it no. sound. Uh, you know, it... You know, it's it's not an intentional sort of thing somebody does and then calls it self-sabotage. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, self-sabotage is something you kind of do unconsciously. Right. And, and that's why it has to be something that's revealed to you as you're working on it. After some time, you might realize that you're doing that sort of thing. Um, but but for him to even talk about it kind of makes it seem like he's already been working on himself and like he's been through enough that he can now recognize it. Right. In that's exactly how it sounds. Yeah. You know? And so it's like, oh, look at him. He's so like self-aware. Exactly. He can see the day after 
that I self-sabotage this. I'm like, just... No, your typical you, human being yeah. might say, I screwed up. Yeah. Like, if they really did screw up, they'd be like, I screwed up. Yeah. And maybe they might recognize that they were nervous. They might recognize that they were feeling rejected and they don't really know how to handle that. Sure, that all could be under the umbrella of self-sabotage, but it's not really typically the thing you apologize for. I don't know. Yeah, well, and it just makes him seem more self-aware than what he really is. It's manipulative. It is just flat manipulative. So John said that the number one predictor of divorce was eye rolling. That's not untrue. It's it's not. I was a little surprised. Now, it's not just eye rolling. It's not. Dr. Gottman is the one who kind of come out with this. And um, he's been doing research since, my God, I mean, he, he's older than sliced bread with this. I mean, it's yeah. like a long time. I'm kidding. Betty White is actually older than sliced <laughs> bread. Um, not Dr. Gottman. But Gottman's been doing this research, I mean, heavily since the 70s. Um, and his findings, it's about bids and turns and rejection. And it's that rejection. When when somebody does something like say, hey, look at that cat outside, which is something I might say, and somebody kind of rolls their eyes, it's a rejection. And oh. those are so much more indicative of of a lack of connection, a lack of awareness for the other person, a lack of, you know, um, care, you know, those are the things. And so it's not the eye rolling. It's what the eye rolling sort of indicates. And that we, we do that without noticing it though. So we do kind of, well, self-sabotage by, we give an eye roll because we're eye rolling, you know, we don't want, don't care about the cat outside. Yeah. What we don't realize is that we're saying is we don't care what you say. Yeah. And it's hard because we, well, I don't know. I care what they say. Well, you didn't really. Yeah. You didn't didn't, really care or else you would have said, oh, really? You know, or, oh, I can't come look. Is it cute? Uh Anything to say, I heard you and I'm responding. Right. Because naturally, if you're in a good relationship or you're connected with somebody and somebody says something like that, you're, even if you can't go look or don't want to, you will do something connected. Oh, what color is that? What color is it? Or... Good. I'm glad he's outside because I hate cats. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even if you're like kind of snarky, I mean, engagement. Uh-huh. So you're being snarky rolling. about the thing and not about the person who's you talking go. to you. So yeah. that's very interesting. And it's, you know, it's contempt criticism. It's contempt. It's, it's all these things that you said. So that they did give in this particular article some tips maybe to just be aware of your delivery is really important. Don't just say whatever to your partner, whatever. Now, you can say whatever you want is fine with me, dear. Right. But that's, that's fine. But no, what? what ifs. Yeah. Where do you want <laughs> to eat? Wherever, whatever. I don't care. You know, it's just, it's a disengagement. Yeah. As you said. Right. Like the difference between, and then I might say, I'm up for anything. Right. That's different. I'm engaging in the conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be careful of uh, sarcasm because it can be really mean-spirited. Now, some people like sarcasm as their love language, and that's okay. But you got to make sure that everybody's on board with that and that they understand how you're saying it yeah, and how you mean it. Sarcasm is a very uh, difficult thing. Yeah. And I think my son, when he was about 12 or 13, said it the best. He was like, sarcasm takes a certain type of relationship. Mm-hmm. So you better make sure you have a relationship before you employ sarcasm. But I would also add that sarcasm is often conflated with doublespeak yes. and with snarky. 
Yeah. Being snarky is not sarcasm. Sarcasm is literally saying the opposite of what you mean. Right. Not saying what you mean with humor attached so that you're not responsible for it. Mm-hmm. If you're being nasty, but then you're saying it with like a joke yeah. and acting like that's that makes it okay. Yeah. No. Oh, it doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make it okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Don't live in the past. Don't relive the issues that you've had in the past. It's okay to like talk about them and work through them and find ways around them for the future, but don't like live in it. Don't sit there in it. Uh, watch your body language. Mm-hmm. That can be important. This men, this one's for you. Don't ever tell your spouse you're overreacting. Oh my gosh. It's like saying, calm down. You know what? Nobody ever calmed down after somebody said, calm down. Never once. Um, if you find yourself feeling or acting contemptuous, take a deep breath. Pause. Yeah. Pause. Big pause. And, and think, how is this going to come across to this person who's, I value their relationship, but it's already in a bad place. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should take a deep breath before I throw out this thing that's biting or vile or hurtful or funny but mean. Yeah. You know? Right. Pauses yeah. are good. Deborah said she wanted a um, we versus me relationship, and she hadn't yet found that and was really looking for it. And that's really like a good thing to work towards. Um, if you're not already there, then it's a, definitely you want to you don't want two people who are working as independent people. You want to be a team. You want to be a team. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this article in HuffPost is really interesting. We versus me couples talking about how we couples tend to take themselves less seriously. They're more like, you know, if your car, the example they give is if your car is stolen, you know, you're like, oh, this is terrible and it's awful. And one of you calls the insurance and one of you calls the rental car company and one of you calls the police and you start living your life again Mm -hmm. while you work it out together instead of why did you park the car there? Right. Did you, why you left the keys in it? What are you stupid? You know, no, (laughs) that's not, that's not helpful. It doesn't sound helpful. No, (laughs) those are me couples who are fighting about you parked it in the wrong place. You didn't lock it. You didn't, you did this, you did that. The reason it's done is because your fault instead of this is a bad thing that happened to us. Us. Let's work to fix it. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Then, then the, High failure rate of second and third marriages. Oh, well, we have talked about that already. We, we a talked bit, about that. But just, just a little, just that it's, you know, up to 67% of second and 73% of third marriages end in divorce. And it might be because people get married too quickly. Hello, Deborah and John. Mm-hmm. Married too quickly. <laughs> they haven't looked at what caused their relationships to fail in the past. That's a level of introspection that I really think that few people end up at after a failed marriage. They don't have a level of introspection to say they tend to blame the other person a lot. And at least in my, my anecdotal experience from people I know have been divorced, they tend to blame the other person a lot and not really kind of take a hard look at, 
okay, how did I contribute to that bad situation? And how can I avoid making those mistakes in the future? Right. It's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, it is. And I mean, part of that even is if you identify the partner's contribution, that's, that's fine to do that, but then also to realize, why did I choose that partner? Why did I allow myself a part of this situation? And that's the hard part because it's, it's taking responsibility for your life, right? but not necessarily having to take responsibility for the poor choices of somebody else. Right. You know, and that's really, that is a lot of division. There's a lot of like separating the bone and the marrow going on there because you're having to decide that it's not my fault, but it's my responsibility. And that can be a really offensive thing when you're hurt and raw or going through challenges because you, it's hard to separate those two things. But when you're in a healthy place, you can kind of separate it because all of a sudden one feels like, okay, now I've identified the problem. And then responsibility is I have the opportunity to change it. It's more like inspiration. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're in the middle of crisis, responsibility and fault feel like the exact same thing. Yes. It's very hard. Yes. Well, in this article by uh, Mark Banchik in Psychology Today, he says he really thinks that second, third, and subsequent marriages fail more often because there's less community, often don't have children together. If you have children from your first marriage, you often don't have children in your second or third marriage. Mm -hmm. So you don't have that binding and children really do act as a binder. Don't have a baby to save your marriage. Don't do that. No, don't do that. It's a bad choice. But if you have children, it can give you incentive to stay together and you have less intermingling of the extended family too in subsequent marriages. Yep. So that can make it harder because you've got kind of two camps going on. You've got the your extended family and they have their extended family and they're not really coming together in a lot of ways. So it segregates your life more and it can be difficult to maintain a relationship in those circumstances. Yeah. It really goes against the idea of the we. Yeah. And you know, you don't have a life that's built together, you know, and I would say that my biggest piece of advice to people who are looking for marriage is to not treat a dating relationship with the same sort of honor, respect, and, and, and acknowledgement of history together or, family intertwined, binding things like children, Mm -hmm. don't treat your dating relationship with that same respect. Hmm. That's interesting. As long as you're dating, you are still interviewing that person. You have not made a commitment that's lifelong. So don't make decisions about how you're going to treat that person in our dating relationship based on how you would treat them once you have made a commitment to go the long Mm -hmm. distance. Mm -hmm. Because if you... If you do that, if you do it backwards, you're liable to then end up married to someone that you should not have been married to right. because you overlooked things trying to be a good partner and mm. having good commitment when you should have been using that as an opportunity to go, oh, red flag. Yeah. <laughs> red yeah. flag. And so don't let let commitment be there for integrity's sake. Don't let history push you to continue a dating relationship. Mm. That changes when you when you finally make a lifelong commitment. Your right. history does matter and right. your commitment does matter. And you know, at that point it's it's a different ball game. But I think sometimes we miss out on the opportunity to make a better choice in marriage because we didn't spend that time dating. And Deborah does this the yeah. whole time. She treats him like as if she owes him some sort of responsible commitment or Aww. some sort of um right 
honor that he has not earned yet. Right. Aww. You know? Aww. And I can see where she's coming from, where she Absolutely. just... She's looking for that committed relationship, so she's just going to pretend so she it's already there. It is. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's not uncommon. I think a lot of, especially I think younger individuals, um, people are getting married much later now, so mm-hmm. maybe uh, there's probably less incident of this. Um, however, I know that when I grew up and when you grew up, there was definitely more of a culture of when you date somebody, you don't keep dating somebody unless you know you're going to marry them. And that idea kind of seeped into the dating relationship. And yeah. so there was this... Yeah. you know, sort of commitment that the best advice I ever heard, I didn't hear it until, you know, I was like an adult and I thought, Ooh, I will incorporate that into my parenting. This was the advice. And it's old advice. Like from like, it was a grandmother who, you know, in the 19, like forties talking to her, like her daughter, like in the fifties. And they said, you're not allowed to go out with somebody a second time until you've gone out with somebody else first. Ooh. Ooh. Because they said the point of dating is to date. Uh-huh. To get to know a, Not a be bunch in a relationship. Of right. Yeah. It's to get to know a bunch of people. And figure and yourself figure, out. Yeah. Figure out what you like. So she said, the daughter was giving an interview and that was tell, her, telling about her mom saying this. And so the daughter was saying that like, yeah, so if I really liked a guy, I had to make another date with another guy fast because if I wanted to go out the next Friday night with him, I had to have something happen in between. Mm-hmm. But she was like, it made me not feel so connected to one man so that mm. I didn't give him honor he hadn't earned, commitment he didn't deserve, and I didn't give him intimacy we didn't really have. Oh, that's good. It's good stuff. That's good stuff. Is five and a half weeks too soon to move in together? Spoiler alert, yes it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes it is. Here are some signs that it's too soon. You don't want to just accidentally slide into cohabitation. Yeah. Like how do you accidentally slide into it? You'd be surprised how easy it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Especially when you're kind of in that mindset where you're, you're giving the relationship more clout than it deserves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're using it as a way to gauge your relationship strength, it's too soon. Ah. Thank you. Huffington post where this article (laughs) came from. If you haven't had your first big argument yet, oh, it's too soon. Yeah, Though right. I do have to say, Deborah and John got it out of the way the very first night. True. Still too soon. As contrived as it was. If you haven't talked about money, it's too soon. If you feel like your partner is pressuring you into a move, it is too soon. Don't do it. Don't do it. So John really kind of started slyly pulling Deborah away from her family, even before Thanksgiving and isolating is really common in abusive relationships. So it's normal. Uh, this is from break the cycle. Uh, it's a dating and violence blog to kind of help it's geared towards young people, teenagers usually, but a lot of it is applicable to adult relationships. So spending a lot of time together is normal. It's fun. You Mm -hmm. want to do it. You want to get to know them. You have this connection. But you want it to be something you want to do and not a command from your partner ever because it really is a form of control. You could see this. It's a slow process. It's walking down a gradual hill and then you look up and realize how far you've come. And that's 
very much what I saw John doing was just really slowly and slyly sliding that wedge between Deborah and her children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Deborah did contribute to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and the way she contributed was she volunteered too much personal information to John too early. Yeah. Uh, when you give away True. your personal information to, to someone, you're giving them a little bit of power and leverage, and you're letting them speak to deep-seated issues in your life before they've really, uh, you know, earned their place there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Super fair. You have to be careful about that. But uh, it's understandable how somebody ends up in that situation. Mm-hmm. Because when you feel a connection with somebody and you don't feel like you have anybody else who understands you, it is so easy to then to take all these things that have been heavy burdens and go, oh my God, somebody else understands. Please listen to this. Uh-huh. And, and help then, me carry this. Right. Help me carry this. But then they give you really bad advice or they use it as leverage against you. You have to be careful about your inner circle. You know, having an inner circle around you people you can talk to, resources you know that you can go to. Those are important. Uh, so real life. How is easy is it to really get married in Vegas? Yeah, how is it? Is it really that easy? I mean, Rachel and Ross did it, but... <laughs> well, it wasn't that easy, but it's pretty... It's still pretty easy. It's pretty easy. Well, they just don't have... I know at least in Texas, you get your marriage license and you have to wait at least three days before you can get married. And that's the way it is in a lot of states. Now, Texas doesn't require a blood test. A lot of states don't require blood tests anymore. Mm -hmm. I think it's less common for you to marry your cousin unintentionally than it used to be. It definitely is. I mean, yeah. But they don't require that. You can, as soon as you have your marriage license, you can get married in Las Vegas. So it's pretty easy. And the There's, chapels, don't they like have the marriage license stuff like right there? You can I just like think so. sign on the dotted line and go down the aisle? I think so. It was... I, I don't I don't know. It's there's a, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's still pretty easy. <laughs> and I think it's mainly having to do with you might actually have to go down to like the city hall, but the city hall has like crazy hours cuz they, they want to accommodate people. So there's about 300 weddings a day or 120,000 marriage ceremonies a year in Las Vegas. Whoa. Yeah, that's a lot. It doesn't cost a lot for a very simple ceremony. It, the license itself isn't expensive. You, it can take as little as 10 minutes to get your marriage license. Now, if it's a particularly busy day, it might take a little longer, but you can get married in under half an hour. Okay. So like, I have a question. Okay. Maybe you don't know the answer to this, but uh, I've wondered. Okay. So I've seen shows like this, you know. Do they actually have wedding dresses that you can like rent? I think so. <laughs> this I is think so. so. Funny. And yeah, because you can have a spur of the moment wedding yeah. that's as simple or as complex as you want it right, to like, be. I, like, it looks like people can like rent a dress so that they I, actually have a real wedding photo mm-hmm. and everything. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and speaking, okay, so you know in Dirty John, that awkward wedding photo uh-huh. that they have, it's like super awkward, it's right? It's really weird. Okay. The real photo is no less awkward. She didn't rent a dress. She she didn't rent a dress. She didn't rent a tux. Um, I think it's just because the picture's black and white. Yeah, but I I mean, 
she's not in white or no, it's not or white. gray or no. Any, I mean, it's like a, it's a, it's like a darker color, it's a darker color. Like uh, maybe shouldn't maybe that should have been a little foreshadowing. <laughs> oh wow, that is really awkward. Mm-hmm. Why is it so awkward? <laughs> because they'd known each other eight weeks. Because I mean, he'd been pressuring her into getting married. They're both like, they're holding their own rings in their hands independently. Yeah. It almost looks like a candid photo it is does, the one that of. they, that's the candid photo that came out kind of okay. Nobody was making a weird face. And so that's the one they bought. But it's awkward. It is really weird. It's super awkward. So you're really supposed to understand by the end of the episode. That John took the cancer patient's medicine. Right. She never got the fentanyl. That's why she was in so much pain. And opioids are the most commonly diverted drug among healthcare professionals. So that's what they call it when a doctor or a nurse or a medical professional, somebody who's working in a hospital, is supposed to give medication to a patient and they keep it for themselves or keep it to sell, whatever they're going to do with it. They don't give it to the patients called diverting. And it's super common statistics from the U.S. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and the American Nurses Association suggest that up to 10% of healthcare workers in the U.S. are abusing drugs. Oh my gosh. And a lot of those are from diversion. Oh my gosh. That's an enormous number. Yeah, it's terrifying. Makes you want to not go to the hospital. And it's seen at all levels of healthcare professionals. It's a stressful job. It's if you're a nurse or uh, orderly or something like that can be underpaid. Wow. That that not excuses. Not excuses, but reasons. Yeah. Yeah. 10% though. That's And they think that only a fraction are ever caught. Because they don't, they don't catch ten percent doing this. Mm-hmm. They think about ten percent are doing this. Yes. It's like uh, Nurse Jackie. Did you ever see that show? I didn't watch it. No. Oh, it was so good. It's so hard to watch though at some points. But she was a full on junkie. Oh, yeah, really good at her job, but a full on junkie. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what we saw here. There's a lot of ways to notice diversion and the one that we see here with john is that he's documented that the patient received medication when she did not get it really it's difficult to prevent because there's everybody knows the processes who's working in the hospital that are supposed to prevent this diversion and so they understand how to circumvent them how to get around it yeah so that makes it really difficult to discover. And really, there's just no good answers about that right now. And, you know, hope springs eternal. Deborah has a new boyfriend as of the fall of 2019. Does she really? She does. But she's not married to him. And she says she learned a lot from her relationship with John as to what to look for so that she could not be manipulated again. And I hope... Far be it for me to tell the lady who's been married five times that she shouldn't date anybody. Oh, right. She, I'm just glad she's finally getting a little smarter about I, it. Yes, yeah. exactly. I hope that this is something that's good for her. Yeah, yes, exactly. Because she does deserve I to mean, have a good, a good relationship. And you know, when you listen to the podcast and she's on that, she herself 
did interviews for it. You hear her voice and she seems like a very sweet, kind-hearted woman. And you really do like, you look at her and you're like, you were a little dumb, but I do just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. yeah. So I hope that she finds that and I hope that she finds it in the safest way. And Deborah, maybe don't get married. Maybe not. Maybe just at least not for a while. A long time. And get a prenup. Get a prenup. And and you know what? Maybe it, when the daughters are happy with the guy. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, maybe listen to your daughters. Maybe listen to your daughters because they weren't wrong. It seems like they weren't ever really wrong. They were ever never really worked, wrong. It never really worked out with any of those guys. Yeah. Now, it might have not worked out because they weren't supportive of their relationship. Maybe. That's a possibility. That's a reason why second, third, yes, fourth fair marriage is failed. That is a reason. But if your kids don't like him, maybe use that as a at least a chance to slow down. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, next time. Next time. Oh, we're going to have a good time. We are going to have a good time because I'm and I've never seen this movie. I I know the secret <laughs> but I've not seen the actual movie, which is Fight, Fight Club. Club. Yes. Brad Pitt. I'm so excited. Yup. <laughs> Jackie's making eyebrows. She's like, ooh, I get to watch some Brad okay, Pitt. But my husband will tell you. Uh-huh. Edward Norton. Yeah. Oh, I am a big, big, big fan of Edward Norton. (laughs) And I don't know what it is about Edward Norton that's so appealing to me. Obviously, he's a fantastic actor. You know, I even think he's a great director. I know some of his films haven't, like the recent one he had, had, didn't come out with much acclaim. Um, I think he can be a little more artsy than people Mm -hmm. want from him because he's so good at the big blockbuster. I don't think they see him with the artsy, but he's actually really brilliant. Um, but all that to say, I have always been a big Edward Norton fan too. So Edward Norton and Brad Pitt in the same (laughs) film. Oh, it's almost too much. (laughs) That sounds like, uh, Eric Bana and Brad Pitt Pitt and Orlando Bloom Bloom all together in one movie. It almost sounds like Orlando Bloom and Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have some wonderful people in this world, and I'm glad they make movies. Yeah, so that we can watch them and think how beautiful they are. They are beautiful. Yeah. But Fight Club is a great film. If you haven't watched this, you need to go back and watch this. Do not let the title fool you, and do not let the synopsis fool you. This movie is about more than you might think, so go watch it. Yeah. This is like a political activist movie. Fun. Do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So find us on the socials. Let us know what you think. Did you, did you find Dirty John to be sympathetic or did you find it to be too, too sympathetic? Did you, did you feel sympathy for Deborah or were you mad at her or were you both? Cause I was kind of both. I was kind of both. And yeah, we want to know what you think. Yeah. We want to know what you think. Yeah. Let us know. Comment. Yeah. All right. Tell us. All right. We'll see you soon. See you next time.